Thank you. Thanks, Jane. Uh, I love that, uh, boy, between uh, our, our angel tree party and uh, Josh Ritter's shop with a firefighter, it was such a, um, yeah, it was a special way for us to spend our, our Christmas this year, really thinking about uh, what it means to um, yeah, not make it about us, but to really think about uh, how we can uh, more uh, adequately and, and, and beautifully reflect the, the beauty of Christ and, and what he's done for us. So um, hopefully, you know, it'll continue to, to shape the way we think, shape the way that we uh, celebrate the events and, and the moments of our lives. And remembering that helps us, uh, continues to keep that, uh, that memory uh, alive in our hearts and fresh in our hearts. And that's what we're doing here. We're remembering over the first three weeks of this year. The call has been to remember. I know that the call to remember is usually something that we do at the end of a year. We look back on a year and we think about, we remember all of the things that we've experienced. Seems a little bit weird for us to begin a year by looking back and remembering, but I think we need to look back in order to, to really be able to move forward. And so um, it, it's interesting in the Bible, there's over 170 times that the Bible tells us to remember. Uh, it tells us to remember in uh, all kinds of different seasons of life. In other words, the call to remember is not an end-of-the-year thing. It's not a beginning-of-the-year thing. It's an all-throughout-the-year kind of a thing. We need to constantly be remembering uh, because there's important things that we miss out on if we don't remember. We've uh, talked about how we need to remember the work of God and the blessings of God, remember the things that God has done because what God's done before, he can do now. Last week, we were uh, reminded to remember our first love. Uh, today, I want to <clears throat> have us remember the greatest command that Jesus gave. Again, remembering is so vital to the way that we live life because uh, my, our senior pastor, uh, Pastor Inky, often says to me, David, you need to always remind people. Right? Always remind people. You think they hear what you're saying, but they don't hear anything. Right? They look like they're hearing, but they don't hear nothing. And if they hear, as soon as they walk out, they forget everything. He says, you got to keep on reminding them, keep on telling them, keep on reminding them. Same thing over and over and over. you got to educate over and over and over. He says that to me all the time, and he said that to me like so many times because he's reminding me of things that he wants me to remind other people. The call to remember is an important thing because we forget so often. One of my pastors growing up used to say, hey, we need to be reminded of things we already know more than we need to be taught new things. Isn't that true? Like we have this longing to constantly learn new things, but the purpose that God gives, or the purpose of God giving us the word of God and teaching is not for our information. You understand this, right? It's for our transformation. And so it ought to make sense that if the information already given to us has not led to a transformation, that we need to go back and be reminded of these things in order that we might actually be changed. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He said, only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Spiritual truth is not transmitted this way. That's not the way of God, that if you know a bunch of stuff, but you're not living it out, he'll give you more stuff, because God's intent was never that we would just become big-headed people with no exercise in living it out. He wants us to be people who take what we know, and we actually begin to live that out. That's how the world gets changed through us. Teaching them to obey, obey everything I've commanded them is what Jesus said. 
And so today I want to bring to remembrance something that probably uh, you may have heard before, you might know already, maybe for some of you it's something you learned in a sermon before or in a children's ministry context, maybe you've never been to church uh, since you were seven years old, but at seven years old you heard this command, maybe this is the first time ever at church, and if that's you, then uh, this will not be a reminder, maybe it might be a teaching, but I want to tell you what Jesus says is the most important thing in life. Let's look at Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read verses 34 through 40. This is a passage that many people consider to be the greatest commandment. In fact, that's the context of this teaching. They ask Jesus, what's the most important thing? So we're going to read verses 34 through 40 of Matthew chapter 22. This is God's word. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, right? Two opposing groups of people. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is God's word. If you were to ask someone, hey, what do you think is the most important commandment in Scripture? Uh, The Jews had their Ten Commandments, and then they had the explanation of the Ten Commandments called the Talmud, 613 commands in all. And of all those commandments, they're asking Jesus, which is the most important one? So someone would ask you, if you did not know the answer, if you did not have Scripture, if you didn't have the Word of God, if you didn't have these teachings, no podcast or anything, all you had was life and what you shared amongst each other, what would you say is the most important thing? Things that you hear people say. What would you think is the most important command in all the scripture? Some of you might say, hey, it's to trust Jesus. you got to trust him. Others might say, uh, we need to obey God. Hey, you don't need to know. You need to obey. Others would say, we got to take the love of Christ to people throughout the world. we got to evangelize, bring the gospel to other people. Uh, 365 times in scripture is the command given to fear not, don't be afraid. That's one for every day of the year. So some of you might be led to think, well, if it's that important, it must be the most important command. What is the most important commandment? Because all of these commandments are important. All of them are great, but not all of them are equally great. Because when they ask Jesus, what is the greatest one? He doesn't say, oh, all of them. (laughs) He gives one. And he says it can be all summed up in one word, it's to love. To love what? To love who? To love how is what we're going to look at. Three thoughts today. Here's the first thing. Remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, remember, keep the main thing the main thing. Because a lot of times we know the main thing, but we don't keep that as the main thing in our lives. D.L. Moody, great uh, preacher of the 1800s, 1800s. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but it ought to be of succeeding at the things that don't really matter. That should be our greatest fear. Not of failing, but at succeeding in the things that don't really matter. Because a lot of times, y'all, we're spending our lives on things at the end of the day that don't really matter, and we're fighting to become successful, and fighting to become awesome, and fighting to become the best 
at things that at the end of the day don't really matter. They ask Jesus, what's the most important thing? What is it that matters above all else, Jesus? And he says, there's one. Let me tell you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and it is the greatest commandment. That's what Jesus says. In other words, he says, let me break it down for you. If you're a child of God, right, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, there's one thing that you need to do, just one thing and one thing only, because if you get this right, then you'll get everything else right. Just get this one thing right. Love God with everything that is within you. That's the most important thing in life, because if you get that, then all these other things are going to come as well. I don't know if you uh, have ever seen the movie Ocean's Eleven. But um, Ocean's Eleven is actually kind of the origin of uh, what's now a pretty famous meme that you see uh, if, if you're on the computer at all. You'll see it all the time. But in Ocean's Eleven, it's this heist movie where they're breaking into a bank and stealing all these things. And there's 11 people, and each of them has a particular role to play in this mission. And there's one point in, in, in the movie, Don Cheadle's character, he's one of, the, one of the main dudes, he breaks into a vault, and they're about to take all of the money. Do you remember this part? They break into the, the vault. Uh, they're clear, in the clear. He's dancing his way into the vault, and all of a sudden, the alarm goes off. The alarm going off should not happen if you're trying to rob a bank. And so one of the 11 people, their mission was, you make sure that the alarm doesn't sound when we break in to the vault to take the money out. And so in his frustration, he says, you had one job to do, and you didn't do it. <laughs> and that gave birth to a million memes that you see everywhere. Whenever someone has a job to do at work and they don't do it well, they've got to draw a straight line, but for whatever reason, their lunchbox is on that line of paint, and so they paint it around it or something. Then you see a, a, a jacked up line, and it says, you had one job to do. Have you seen these? Uh, there was one where I, I saw yesterday um, a Barbie you know, the Mattel or whatever toy Barbie. There was a backpack with Barbie on it, pink backpack, orange, uh, Barbie sticking out of it, and it said Spider-Man on it. And under that picture, it said, you had one job to do. That's all you had to do. Just make sure that the Barbie label goes on the Barbie backpack. One job, and they didn't do it. Same thing is true of the guy whose one job was to write S-T-O-P on that red hexagon, but they wrote spot instead of stop. You had one job to do. Jesus says, Christian, understand this. You've got one job to do. One job to do. Love God. That's it. It's important that he says this. Hey, let's remember to keep the main thing the main thing because I'm not saying we don't do this. I think most of, most of you love God probably. If you, if you say you're a Christian, you probably love God. But the challenge is and the temptation is to make loving God a minor and to major in something else. And you remember that the greatest fear should not be of failure but at succeeding in things that don't really matter. Who defines what success is? Who defines what really matters? It's not us. It's not your friends, not your boss, not your peer group. It's Jesus. He says, here's the most important thing. Here's what you got to get, Christian. Your one job that you got to do <laughs> is to love God. That's your major in life. But the challenge 
is that we're really good at majoring in something else and minoring here in loving God. If, you, if, if you're a church-going person, maybe your major is showing up at all the church gatherings. And I go to house church, I go to our youth meeting, I go to Sunday school, I go to prayer meeting, I go to worship service, but I don't have love in my heart for God. You have majored in something besides loving God. Some of us are majoring in reading the Bible and we're minoring in loving God. We're majoring at serving God and we're minoring in loving God. We're majoring in loving people. Man, I love everybody. I love every. You know, there's nobody as nice as me. Nobody's as nice. I love everybody. I give everybody a hug on Sunday morning. You major in loving people, but you minor in loving God. And getting it backwards means that we've missed out on what Jesus says is the most important thing. How are you doing as it relates to loving God? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Because that's my fear for myself. That I would be good at doing a lot of other things, but not be so good at loving God. You know, there were times where people said, hey, uh, what, do you want, what do you want it to be said on your tombstone? Well, there's a lot of things. I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful. I value and I prize faithfulness to my God, to my family, to the people that I love. I, I want to be a great pastor. I want to be a great preacher. I want to be a great servant of God. All of these things. But at the end of the day, guys, if, if I do those things but I don't become great at loving Jesus, then I've missed out on the most important thing. At the end of my life, that's what I want. You know what? That guy... He just loved Jesus. If I could get to the end of my days and, and people say, people who know me say, you know what, he loved Jesus, then my life will not be wasted. A lot of times, though, a lot of times, don't we do this? We're really good at all these other things. And we're not so good at loving God with everything within. See, here's a tricky thing because we can obey God and not really love him. <laughs> we can come to church and not really love God. We can serve God and not really love him. We can sing about God and not really love him. We can study the word of God and not really love him. We can pray to God and not really love him. We can give our offering, even a lot of offering, to God and not really love him. But check it out. You cannot love God and not give to him. You cannot love God and not obey him. You cannot love God and not serve him. You cannot love God and not end up doing the things that he says. That's why when they ask him, what's the most important thing? What does it mean to be a success in the eyes of God? He says, here it is. Just love God with everything that is within you. He says, with all, this, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In Mark's gospel, it adds, and with all your strength as well. That means he's not, your heart is, your, is the seedbed of who you are, your feelings, your emotions. He's saying, love the Lord your God with all of your emotions. But even in the absence of that, he says, love the Lord your God with all your soul. That means your allegiance, like my set, my heart is set, my allegiance, my soul is set on loving God above anyone and everything else. Even in the absence of feelings, you, fo you follow God because you know that it's the right thing, because you've chosen to do that thing. With all of your mind, it means that your mind is made up. It's an attitude of your heart. 
that no matter what anybody else says, they can take my life, they can take my dreams, they can take everything, but they cannot take my love for Christ. Has nothing to, it has something to do with our feelings, but it's not all about our feelings. He says, it is your affection, it is your adoration. Love God with all of that, but not only with that. I want you to love me with all of your attitude, with all of your allegiance, and with all of your actions, even when the emotions are not there. To love him with everything. So a lot of times we think loving God means i got to feel it all the time. i got to feel it all the time. He's saying, no, 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 no. Just like you don't feel it all the time when you love your people in your house church or your, your youth students. You don't always love your parents. You don't feel like loving your parents. You don't always feel like loving your spouse. But you choose to do that because it's not just heart. It's your soul, your mind, your strength. And Jesus is saying, that's what it means to love God with all of your faculties. But he doesn't just... He doesn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what a lot of us think. He says, no, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. In other words, he's saying, love God with every faculty of your being, but with every part of every faculty of your being. He's saying, love the Lord your God with everything that you are. That's the only acceptable kind of love given to the infinite lover who made you and saved you and loved you and gave everything in order that you might be his glorious reward. That's what it means to succeed at the things that really matter. Love me with everything, he says. Because a lot of times we forget these things. And if this were the only message that I would preach to my heart every day of my life, I would still find myself lacking. But I remind myself, as I remind you, let's remember to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your minds. The first, it's the greatest commandment. The second thing that we see, though, second thing that we see is that the main thing is actually two things. <laughs> So some of you might be thinking, hey, you know what? I'm doing pretty good at this loving God thing. I think I got it. I've been walking with God for a while. I feel it when I feel it. And even when I don't feel it, I still show up. I obey God. I think I'm doing all right. Where I struggle, though, is, man, there's just some people that I, I really don't like. <laughs> Those people, man, oh, when I get to heaven, all will be well. To dwell above with ones I love, that will be my glory. But to dwell below with ones I know, <laughs> that's another story. That's what we say, right? I can love God, but hey, you know what? These people, God, you know them. You, know, you, you hung out with Judas. You hung out with Peter. You hung out with Thomas, the doubter. I got friends like that all the time. I will love you, Jesus, but these cats, they're just kind of weird, right? Jesus says the first and greatest commandment to love God, and he says, oh, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What they thought was the end of the conversation. Love God was actually just the start of the conversation. Don't tell me that you love me if you don't love the people that you see. In fact, that's what 1 John says. No one can say, I love God whom you can't see if you don't love your neighbor whom you do see. Wow. That's crazy. It's like, yeah, no, 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 no. Don't love people and then love me second. No, no, no. Major on the majors and minor on the minors, but understand that major... If you're a Christian and the life of faith is college, then you don't just have a major, you have a double major. Most important commandment, commandment one, to love God, 
commandment 1b is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. All of a sudden, that changes because Jesus says, no, no, no. In in the mind of Jesus, in the mind of God, you cannot separate loving God from loving your neighbor. You can't. He says you can't love God and not love people. It's not the way that the gospel says. And and, and if you love people, then it's got to come from a love of God or else it's not gospel love. There are a lot of loving people in this world just by virtue of common grace. But he says, you want to get this right, then you love God with everything, and oop, as a result of that, you're going to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. What does that mean, though? So they ask him that question. In another gospel, they say, okay, Jesus, in, in Luke, tell us what it means then. What does it mean to love our neighbor, and who is our neighbor? Two questions. What does it mean to love, and who is our neighbor? Because we have in our mind a conception, an idea of who we think. And based on what love is and based on who our neighbor is, hey, we might be doing good at this. In fact, you might not even need Jesus in your life in order to fulfill this command if we do it according to our own definitions of love and of neighbor. We have our ideas of what love is. Let me tell you, there was, a, there was this uh, survey done by a bunch of professionals, old people who are working, white-collar folks, and they asked children between the ages of four and eight, hey, what is love? Like, what do you know about love? Can you tell us what love is? And, and I want to read to you what some of these children said. An eight-year-old named Rebecca said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. That's what eight-year-old Rebecca said. From the mouth of babes. Uh, Six-year-old Chrissy. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give any of theirs to you. That's Chrissy, six-year-old. You understand the mind of a child now, right? This is love. This is powerful. Six-year-old Tommy, uh, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. Wow, that's awesome. Five-year-old Lauren, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) Somebody got punked. (laughs) Seven-year-old Karen, this is what Karen said. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. I don't even know what that means. I've never seen that. Stars come out of you. Then we have in our mind an idea of what we think love is. Your eyelashes go up and down and stars come out of you. That's what it means to love. But Jesus has a completely different conception of what love might be. He, and then they ask him, and who's my neighbor? You know why they ask him who his neighbor? Because in their mind, this is what they thought. As a Jewish person, okay, a, a, my neighbor is a fellow Jewish person. Right? If you're a Gentile, I don't need to love you. I just love the people I want to love. That's easy for me to do. I can do. So they ask him, tell me who my neighbor is so that I can justify myself and let myself think that I'm doing pretty well. And Jesus tells him this story that flips all of that upside down, right side up, on its head. There's this Jewish man, and he's going on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's called the Bloody Path. 
You know, it's called the bloody path because uh, bad dudes would hang out around the curves, a very curvy road, and bad guys would hang out. And if people were traveling by themselves and these bad guys would come and they'd jump them and they'd take their money and they'd beat them up. It was a bloody path. And so one day, a Jewish man is walking on the bloody path, and just as you would have it on that path, he got jumped, and he got beat up, and people jacked everything from him, took everything, and they left him for dead. So he's on the side of the road, and a guy walks by. He's a priest, the highest religious leader of the Jewish people. And he sees the man, and he says, you know what? If I touch him, then I'm going to get dirty. I cannot go to worship, and that's where I'm going. I'm going to worship. So he left him on the side of the road, and he went by. And the Jewish people are like, "Mm, okay, it's a little bit weird, but he probably should have helped him, but debatable. Then a Levite comes by, Levite kind of like a priest, kind of like a junior priest. He helps out in the line of the priests as well, works in the temple, things like that. And so a Levite sees the dude, and he's like, ooh, that guy's, he got jacked up. I should Maybe I should help, but he thinks too, if I help him, I'm going to get dirty and I cannot go do the temple duties that I'm going to do. And so he goes to the other side of the road and he walks by. The Jewish people who are hearing this are like, wow, that's kind of, I, I understand because he's going to worship God and that's his job and, and that's huge and that's important. He's got to do his religious duty. Then Jesus says, and then a Samaritan came around, and the Jewish people all said, oh, Samaritan, <laughs> these guys are awful. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, sworn enemies. It is the, the worst of the worst. Samaritan is introduced in the story, and the Jews are like, oh, this guy's definitely not going to do anything. But Jesus says of the Samaritan, he looked at him, and he had pity on him. He bandaged up his wounds. He cleaned them off. He put him on his own donkey. He took him to the nearest inn and gave the innkeeper money and said, you take whatever he needs, I'll do for him. And when I come back, I'll give you more money if it's not enough to cover his needs. And the Jewish people are shocked. They're like, he did what? He paid for his Uber and gave him the credit card to the hotel? That's crazy. Who does that kind of stuff? So Jesus says, all right, now listen, Jews, listen. Two Jews, a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan. Who was the neighbor? (laughs) They're like, oh, I guess. uh, Do you remember what they said? They didn't say the Samaritan because they couldn't get themselves to utter that despised term from their lips. They said, the one who showed mercy. In other words, here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying the wrong question is, who's my neighbor? The right question is, to whom will you be a neighbor? Don't make it. Th- the reason they wanted a definition is because if you define it for me, Jesus, then I can draw a boundary around it. They wanted a definition because they wanted a limitation to their love. Jesus is saying there is no definition. Everybody that you see, they are your neighbor. Ultimately, he's, he's trying to drive this point. You cannot love everybody. You can't. Right? You can. You need to turn to one who can. But they're like, no, nah, that, that's crazy. You, that's foolish talk, Jesus. He draws the circle as wide as you can around the circle of humanity. And he says, these are the people. You've got to go and love anyone to whom you can show mercy. Here's, how you, what, here's the rubric of love. As much whatever you want them to do for you, whatever you would do for yours. If you were jumped on the side of the road, Jewish dude, what would you want Somebody to do for you. Whatever you'd want, whatever you do for yourself, you do that for somebody else. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. This is game changing. 
But it's not surprising because Jesus says, hey, if you love people that you love, who love you back, everybody does that. Everyone does that. What different are you from everybody else in the world? But that's why Jesus' ethic goes beyond that and says, you know what? The one you hate the most, your enemy, says love your enemy. That don't make no sense, Jesus. When they persecute you, pray for them. Jesus is saying, man, uh, what I've come to do is I've come to bust these categories wide open. You think you're doing this okay? You have no idea. You have no idea the kind of love that I'm talking about right here. That's what Jesus says. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's where this idea came from that a graduate of Rollins College from the 60s, ordained as a Presbyterian pastor, decided to start a TV show to really teach people what it means to be a neighbor to other people. And so Fred Rogers started Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood with this one simple line, won't you be my neighbor? I'm willing to be your neighbor. Would you be, would you, could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? That's what Jesus, and his friend said, if you've ever, if you've seen the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, I'm not going to ruin anything for you because I haven't seen it. I just read about it. His friend said, Fred's theology was love your neighbor as yourself. Where did he get that? He said he would watch all these TV shows uh, for kids. And the, the one he, he talks about is like I, they would take pies and they would throw it in each other's face and everybody would laugh at them. <laughs> and he said, how sad that this is what kids are praising because what they praise they will end up practicing. And so he said, I'm going to start my own show. And the producer and the director talk about it. And they say, you think of whatever makes a great TV show for kids and you do the opposite, you have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He was the most boring of characters. He could not hold a candle to Big Bird or Oscar the Grouch or Spider-Man or any of these other people. He was just a man who looked kind of dressed like me and would come in and he would change his shoes, put on his slippers. He wouldn't yell. He wouldn't scream. He would just, hello, everybody. You are special. (laughs) The coolest thing on his set was a train, like a toy train. But how many times after 33 years is that train going to get old? It was a low-budget set. He, was a low, he wasn't like a superhero man, but they said what made him awesome, what caused people to tune in every day, every day people tuned in because there was a message that was not being communicated by any other TV show. What was a message? That you matter. That you matter. That you are loved and that you are special. Not because of what you do, not because of what you have done, not because of what you will one day do, but simply because you are you and you are special. And people tuned in and, and, and these articles I read said as, as the screenings were shown, it was grown people. It wasn't kids who watched it. Grown people wept and wept and wept, not out of nostalgia, but because they realized that when they watched that show as a kid, he was telling them that they mattered. And it was that sense of worth that he said, your feelings as a kid matter as much as the feelings of a grown-up. And he validated those things. When Robert Kennedy got assassinated, when the space shuttle Challenger exploded, when a kid died jumping off of his house because he thought he could be Superman, he would talk about those things. 
in a way that was safe for children to hear and understand. And his whole idea of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was he said, if everyone really treated one another as a neighbor, then my neighborhood is what the world would look like. This was God's desire for the world, that you matter and that you know that you matter. And one of the recurring characters who came on his show, which was controversial to say the least, but it gave this man life, was an African-American name, man named Officer Clemens. He was a police officer, and he would constantly come on the show, and he said, Fred, putting me on this show was itself a statement to every other African-American kid and every kid who looked different from Mr. Rogers that you matter to us. And he went even further. One day when the news reports were saying that swimming pools in America were being segregated and when African-American children were being chased out because Caucasian people were pouring bleach into the pools, Mr. Rogers brought out a little kiddie pool and he sat outside and he said, man, it is hot out here. And he filled up that pool. He took off his shoes and socks and put his feet in the water. Officer Clemens walked by, and he said, sure is hot out here. And Mr. Rogers says, this feels really great, feels really good. Why don't you come, and won't you sit next to me and put your feet in the water next to me? And it was a powerful, powerful statement. At that image of, in those days, a white man and a black man sitting in a pool of water, their feet dunked in a pool of water together, was an extremely countercultural demonstration of what he meant when he heard Jesus say, Love your neighbor as yourself. Where did he get this idea from? Where did Martin Luther King Jr. get this idea from? To them, they said, There is no way that I can reconcile loving God with all of my heart and not letting that affect the way that I love my neighbor. In fact, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, hangs on these two commandments. At the beginning, God said, okay, here's your relationship, Adam and Eve. You walk with me in the cool of the day, and you have a relationship with one another. That's it. It's vertical, and then it's horizontal. These relationships are always intertwined together. And when this relationship was off, then that relationship broke. And that's how it is for all of us. When our relationship with God is off, that's why we don't treat each other the right way. Jesus says this throughout. You see this throughout the Gospels. You see this throughout the, the, the New Testament. Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did it unto me. In other words, you can't separate what you do for people with what you do for me. When Paul is persecuting, Saul is persecuting the church, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because you cannot separate what you do to people with what you do to me. Why? Because every person, whether they're a child of God or not, every person born in this world is marked and stamped with the image of God on them. And so what you do to people is ultimately a reflection of what you're doing to God. He says you cannot separate the two. You've got a double major here. You major in loving God and you major in loving your in people and you cannot separate the two. And what does it mean to love your neighbor? It means to love everybody and to extend to them the kind of love that you wish they would, that somebody would extend to you had you been in their shoes. In other words, the first and second commandments are so inextricably woven together that you cannot do one. It's like love and marriage. Love and marriage, Sinatra said. You can't have one without the other. Loving God and loving people, you can't have one 
without the other. In fact, John goes on even further and says, don't even tell me that you love God. You can't see God. How can you, how can you love him if you don't love people? He says, 1 John 4, I think it's 1 John four nineteen. He says, anyone who says I love God but doesn't love his brother, he says, he is a liar. He doesn't say, uh, oh, oh, he's struggling. <laughs> he's backsliding in his faith. He's having a hard day. It's not his personality. He says, no, 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 no. You say you, you lift your hands and worship to God, but you withhold your hands from your neighbor. He says, you're a liar. That's what he says. And he doesn't mince words. That's the second thing. The main thing is actually two things. And then the last thing. The second thing is impossible without the first thing. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. My, uh, my son Elijah, we, uh, his, his, I think probably one of these days, his favorite movies um, that he saw on Netflix uh, was a movie called Ant Boy. I've talked about Ant, Ant Boy before. It's this like budget uh, Hungarian movie about a boy named Wilhelm. Wilhelm, uh, and he becomes Ant Boy. How does he become Ant Boy? Um, just like every other superhero becomes a superhero. Ant Boy, real creative, uh, not to be mistaken with Ant Man or Spider Man, but the stories are, are the same. Here's Ant Boy. Little uh, Wilhelm is walking around, and one day he gets bit by an ant. How unpredictable. Gets bit by an ant, and then he gets infused with ant like powers. Oh my gosh. You will no longer be called Wilhelm. You are now Ant Boy. You are powerful. And so he's Ant Boy. And he's like fighting crime. And uh, I forget what makes Ant Boy so powerful, but Ant Boy is like really strong. I guess for his size, he can carry like, uh, you know, like little ants can carry grass on them or can carry breadcrumbs. So I guess that's the power of Ant Boy. This Ant Boy is like, you know, this like silly, uh, little bit pudgy kid. And, and his arch nemesis is the flea. The flea is a scary-looking guy, and he's like, you know, kind of round man with, with a beard. And he's the flea, and he likes to, like, uh, do bad things to people. I forgot what exactly happens in the movie, but towards the end of the movie, I think Ant Boy has this kind of sense of, like, superhero fatigue, and he needs a superhero sabbatical or something like that. And so he says, you know what? I'm tired of, of being uh, Ant Boy. I just want to be Wilhelm again. <laughs> so he, like, uh, he's at school. I, I, I might be getting it wrong, um, but I don't mind ruining because I don't believe any of you will watch it. <laughs> so Ant Boy's at school, and he says, I don't want to be Ant Boy anymore. And so he takes off his mask, and he takes off his uniform, and he takes off his giant bug repellent, and he, like, throws it in the school hallway. And he's like, I'm done being Ant Boy. And all of a sudden, it's at this point in time when the flea begins to attack the school, and he jumps into the school, and he's, like, going to attack them. Ant Boy has this friend. Wilhelm has this friend, and this friend is jealous of Ant Boy's powers because Ant Boy gets all the, you know, the two girls uh, in the school like him, and so this boy is jealous, and so he's like, oh, I want to be Ant Boy, I want to be Ant Boy, and he sees Ant Boy's discarded uniform. He's like, this is my chance, like, this is my chance to strike, and so he puts on the Ant Boy uniform, and he puts on the mask, he picks up the bug repellent, and at this point, Elijah gets really upset. He's like, oh, this is so dumb, that it's not going to work. He's not really Ant Boy. 
He just has the mask. He doesn't have the power. All he has is the uniform. That's all he has. It's not going to work. He's going to get beat up. And he got so upset. He got so frustrated. And he was right because that pseudo ant boy didn't have, he didn't get bit by the radioactive ant. All he had was a uniform. And so he got beat up and it was like, oh, ant boy's a wimp. And, and on and on the story goes. And then it ends and uh, Wilhelm goes back and becomes ant boy and defeats the flea. And, and that leads to ant boy part two, which is coming up sometime. <laughs> But maybe you feel the same frustration that Elijah did or that, that that other dude did. I've got the power. But then he cannot actually live out what he thinks he's trying to live out. Do you ever feel like, how am I supposed to love everybody? I mean, I could, okay, I think maybe this half of the room I can love. Maybe like first couple rows because they're always sitting in the front and they're nodding their head. I think I can love all of them, but those in the back, man, those guys, I don't know about them because they usually the ones in the back come late. So I don't know about, I can love, how can I love everybody? But Jesus is saying, you can't. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself unless you first understand what it is to be loved. Uh, Secular psychologists, counselors will say, here's your problem, son. The problem, okay, here's your problem. You don't love yourself enough. Because you don't love yourself enough, how can you possibly love anybody else? And then in a cloak of theological acumen, they'll say, Jesus himself said, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you don't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor. That's your problem. And they might be on to a little something, but they would be scripturally and biblically false. Because it's not about, Jesus never said love. Hey, hey, first of all, here's the here's first commandment. Guys, guys, listen. Love yourself. Really love yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, say I'm, I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, and then you can do it. Then go and, and love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, here's the first and greatest commandment. Love God. Why? Yeah, our inability to love people is functionally an inability to have love in our hearts. But it's not the love you have for yourself. That's silly. How far will self-love go amongst a world in need? He says it's not about that. It's about loving God, an infinite source. And you can only love God if you know that he has loved you first. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You have a hard time loving? Ant boy, here's your problem. You need to get bit by the radioactive gospel love of Jesus Christ. That's your issue. Get bit by it over and over and over and over again because if you know the love of God, that's why we talked about last week, remember your first love because when that love fills your heart, then you will respond to the love of God by loving him back and then when that heart is satisfied, then you'll be able to love other people. This is how we know what love is, the love of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he loved us first. John 13, 34, 35, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another. Jesus, we've heard that command before. Here's why it's new. As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. In other words, you can't love one another unless you know how Jesus has loved you. But when you get that love, 
then you become a love machine and you begin to tell other people and show other people of the love of God. And you can give to other people because there's an infinite love source that rises up from inside of you that flows from heaven above. Love received becomes love reflected, becomes love revealed into the world. You major in two things. It's a double major, but you cannot do that. The first, the second is impossible without the first. I tell you what, I grew up in church knowing what the great commandment was, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And I knew that I was supposed to love my neighbor as much as I love myself. And so in my understanding, flawed as it was of what my duty was, I tried to love people. I was a good person. In fact, you ask people in my 11th grade, 12th grade, in my youth group growing up, they would have said, you know what, uh, David Larry Kim, he is a really loving guy. He's a really good guy. He's a fun guy. He's a nice guy. He will give rides to middle school students. He will do whatever it takes. He's a nice guy. But is he a loving guy? Yeah, he's a loving guy. They would all say that. And I would tell you that the deep, dark secret of my heart was that the reason I sought to be loving to other people was because deep in my heart I wanted them to love me. Because I wasn't giving to them out of an overflow of love, I was given to them out of a vacuum of love. I was nice to people because I wanted people to think that I was a nice person. I was good to other people because I wanted people to think that I was a good person. I loved other people because I wanted to have a reputation as being a lover, not a fighter, just kidding. Because I wanted to be seen as a person who loved other people. At the end of the day, what I thought and people thought was love for other people was actually a love for myself. I didn't love my neighbor as myself. I love myself and I use my neighbor to get that love. Why are you so nice? Why are you so good? Why are you so loving? Why are you so kind to other people? Is it out of an overflow or is it out of a need? Because I tell you, when I gave my life to Christ that first year in college and the love of God began to invade my heart, no one needed to tell me, you need to go and love other people. When the love of God became real and I just started loving God, I, I, at, right after school, I would just go and spend an hour in the chapel praying to God and I'd come home and I would read. I'd read the Bible. I'd read Christian books and then I would go on the lawn. I would go throughout the campus. I'd just tell everybody about Jesus. No one needed to tell me and no one could stop me either. I called my friends from high school. I called my family members. I called my brother. I said, dude, you got to get your life straight with God. You got to get right with God because he loves you. I was loving everybody and their grandmother. I would tell people at the Stuff. Hey, do you know about Jesus? Do you believe in heaven and hell? And these cats would say to me, you know what? I don't. But if I did, if I was, if, if I did believe in heaven and hell and people like you were going to be in heaven, I'd rather go to hell because I don't like people like you. I said, hey, that's cool. I still love them. I still love them. Still love them. Because no one could tell me to love and no one could stop me from loving because there was a love in my heart that was put there to stay from God above. It, this is, here's, here's what I'm saying. If I could just break it down. We're not changed to love people because of a command. We're changed because of the cross. When the love of God becomes real to you, then you will love him in reply, and then you'll go and you show the love of God to people that you've never even met. People that you sit next to on the airplane. People that you sit next to, that you see sitting by themselves at McDonald's. You go and you talk to them. Because the love of God invades your heart, and it impels you, and it compels you, and it drives you outward. You cannot love people unless the love of God is central in your heart. 
But when the love of God becomes real, it changes us from the inside out. This, this is what it is to remember the greatest. See, at the end of it all, our greatest fear should not be of failure. It should be of succeeding at things that don't really matter. Jesus says, here's what really matters. Here's the greatest commandment. Remember this, remember this, remember this. Tie a string around your finger. Write it, get it tattooed on your, on, your, on your hand. Whatever you do, but remember, remember, remember. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The main thing is actually two things. The second, impossible without the first. But if you get this, Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray together. I suppose that the most important thing right now would not be for us to pray, Lord, help me to love better. I think the greatest thing that we need to pray is, Lord, help me to know your love better. Let's pray to God that he would help us to receive his love deep in our hearts. Lack of love for people, lack of love for God isn't because you're not loving. Love doesn't begin with you. Not, biblical, not gospel love begins with God because none of us will love God on our own, will seek God on our own. But Jesus, the good Samaritan, came to us in our deadened state. And he paid everything in order that we might have life. So can we pray? Maybe, maybe it will help you just to lift your hands as in, in a posture with your palms up to receive. And Lord, would you help me to know your love? Help me to receive your love now. Let's receive God's love. Just say, Lord, help me to know. Help me to know through your Holy Spirit. Help me to know how much you love me. Just make that our simple prayer. Love comes from the inside out. Just ask the Lord to do that in us. And after a moment, I'll pray on our behalf and then we'll continue to worship and respond to the word of God. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and your grace in us. We thank you for a never-ending, never-failing, never-ceasing fountain of love that flows from heaven, that comes from Calvary. Thank you that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Pray that you would help us to receive your love order that we would reflect your love to a world in need. May we remember this is what matters most. May we respond to you in love. We thank you. We love you because you've loved us first. As a result of that love, Lord, help us to love others. In Jesus' name we pray.